Globalization, I think, really means networked. Um, interconnections that mean that something that happens around the world can affect us in Nebraska today. But I think it's also an exchange of cultural items including language and ideas and behaviors and things that sometimes seem strange to us. Because of our size, our economic power, our military power, uh, the wisdom of our diplomacy, uh, we can affect the world in many ways, for, for better or for worse. As an economist, we would look at globalization just from the economic perspective, but it is a much broader concept than that, I think. It's uh, just, again, just the, the integration of human societies that, you know, are often national in nature, regional in nation, nature, and now they are essentially uh, one world. As Pietro Rivoli points out in her writing, um, what starts on a farm in Texas moves to the other side of the world. Uh, a product then moves back here to the markets that are, that are consuming that product here in the United States and in Western Europe and so on. As we free up these markets, uh, what comes across the national boundaries are not just the products and services, but also some of the cultural uh, practices uh, and influences uh, begin to uh, spread around the globe. And sometimes those uh, cultural influences that come from uh, other parts of the globe uh, clash with the, with the domestic practices. And so we see evidence of, of that as well as, as we pursue globalization. We have to recognize also that we are part of this very complex system that has given us a high standard of living um, that has had many benefits. So how can we make this work? And we have to get away from this urge to just focus on one aspect at a time and just, you know, take a hammer to it and hit it over the head. Uh, if we do that, we do a lot of damage elsewhere throughout the system. We have to be very careful. We are in a very complex economic and social system today. Good evening. I am Professor Lloyd Ambrosius. Uh, it is my pleasure as chair of the program committee to welcome you to the Ian Thompson Forum on World Issues. Uh, founded by uh, Ian Jack Thompson uh, and later named in his honor, uh, the forum is designed to engage the University of Nebraska community and the general public in important issues uh, affecting all of us in the contemporary world. We are grateful to the Thompson family and the Cooper Foundation for their generous support uh, for this lecture series. We also are thankful to the LEAD Center, Nebraska Educational Telecommunications, uh, Cable Channel 21, KRNU Radio, and the University Bookstore for their support. This evening's lecture, Who's Afraid of International Trade? by Professor uh, Pietra Rivoli is also a Lewis Harris lecture on public policy. 
The Harris Lecture on Public Policy was created uh, to examine major public policy issues and to provide a special opportunity for interaction between students, the business community, and the academic community in Nebraska. The annual Lewis E. Harris Lecture on Public Policy was endowed by the Smith-Klein Corporation to honor its former chairman, the late Lewis E. Harris, founder of the Harris Laboratories, uh, one of the world's leading uh, independent scientific testing and research uh, laboratories. Professor Rivoli is on the faculty at the Madonna uh, School of Business at Georgetown University, where she teaches finance and international business. Her book, The Travels of a T-Shirt in the Global Economy, has been widely acclaimed as a path-breaking study of globalization. After her lecture, you will have the opportunity to ask questions of our speaker by writing them on cards provided by the ushers. Now join me in welcoming uh, Professor Rivola to Nebraska. Thank you so much uh, for inviting me back to Nebraska. It's actually my second time here at the University of Nebraska uh, to come and talk about topics related to my book, and I'm just delighted to be here on this very, very beautiful day. Uh, it's a little bit hard for me to see you, uh, but I can see we have a, a lot of people out there, and um, in, in economics, when you have a lot of people in the audience, what we just assume is that the tickets must have been very cheap. Okay. So thank you all very much for coming. Okay. In about two weeks, uh, we're going to have uh, some distinguished guests visit us in Washington, D.C. Uh, they come about every six months for the semi-annual meetings of the officials of the World Bank and the IMF. You never quite know in Washington what's going to happen at these meetings. Uh, starting about 12 years ago, uh, they started to become a lot more exciting. Okay. About in 1999, okay, a big rash of anti-globalization protests started to accompany these meetings every six months or so. Um, and about probably the last one was maybe in 2008 or 2009, Every couple of years, uh, these protests would kind of flare up again. Okay? Uh, a couple of times, the anti-globalization protests surrounding these meetings were actually big enough to bring the entire uh, meeting to a halt, and the delegates had to turn around and go home. Okay? Uh, in the early years of the anti-globalization protests, uh, these protests weren't just taking place in Washington, they were taking place all around the world. We had them in Milan and in, uh, in Tokyo and in Seoul, Korea and in Rio de Janeiro. Okay? Uh, all of this was part of a very far-flung yet pretty well-coordinated 
uh, movement that has come to be known as the anti-globalization movement. Okay. Now, I have, uh, I'm old enough to have lived through a number of, of, of activist movements. And I think what is interesting about the anti-globalization movement is that it's hard to say uh, in succinct words what exactly uh, the protesters are opposed to. Okay? So for example, a couple of years later on Georgetown University campus, we had an anti-war protest uh, when the US invaded Iraq. And it's very clear as you listen to those protesters, what it was they were opposed to. They were opposed to the US military presence in Iraq. Okay? The anti-globalization protest it did not have a, a, a concise thing that people were against. It was a very diverse. Again, it was very far-flung. It was all over the place, both in terms of geography as well as, as topic. Now, the anti-globalization protests uh, took particular root on college campuses, including here at uh, the University of Nebraska, uh, and including my own university, Georgetown University. And it was these protests that gave rise to my book, The Travels of a T-Shirt in the Global Economy. Because one day, I was walking back to my office in 1999, and I found the entrance to my office building blocked by a protest. So I couldn't actually get into my building, and so I stopped to listen to what was going on. Uh, what the students were protesting at the time, uh, and again, because the anti-globalization movement was so broad, this particular group of students was protesting against outsourcing and international trade in the apparel industry uh, as it applied to our university licensed apparel. So you have t-shirts that say Nebraska across the front and we have t-shirts that say Georgetown. Um, that apparel is licensed apparel, that is, you know, people pay to be able to put those words on the t-shirt. Okay? And the student protesters were saying, wait a minute, if you're going to put the word Georgetown across the front of this t-shirt, then we want some assurances and safeguards put in place that these, this apparel was not produced in sweatshops. Um, and they had a, a, a vision, if you will, uh, in their heads about the conditions under which apparel was produced in our new global economy. And this movement became known as kind of a, uh, it was a subset of the anti-globalization movement, and it became known as the anti-sweatshop movement. Um, one thing led to another that day, and the students ended up um, occupying the university president's office. And they refused to leave until the university agreed to address some of their demands and their concerns. Now, if you know anything about universities, you know the, the way we address anything is that we, we form a committee. Okay? And so while the students were um, taking the president's office hostage, the university's first response is, calm down, we'll form a committee. Okay? And sure enough, they formed a committee, and I was appointed to this committee. Now, we started this dialogue 
uh, with the students having very clear ideas about the injustices out there in the world. And they had kind of a movie reel in their head about the awful conditions under which this clothing was, was being produced. They had movies in their head of, of, of unsafe conditions, of unclean conditions, of low wages, of child labor, so forth and so on. And these were the conditions under which Georgetown Apparel was being produced, they said. Now, of course, my response back to them was, well, how do you, how do you know that? You know, how, how do you know that? Okay. Well, they didn't really know, but they had, they had heard about these things. Okay. But, and here was my problem, I didn't really know either. So I was in no position to counter this or to support it or to say anything much at all about it because I had um, a very extensive academic background in the field of international trade. I knew a lot about how the global economy worked, but if you're actually talking about the nitty-gritty of conditions in an apparel factory, well, of course, I had no idea. Um, and so this ignorance on my part okay, was actually what led me to write this book, The Travels of a T-Shirt in the Global Economy, because I decided that in order to have an intelligent conversation, I needed to have some first-hand knowledge of what was actually going on. So I began to investigate the life story of this simple t-shirt, and my objective was not just to learn about the conditions in the factories, my, con my objective was to, was to kind of ask the question, well, how can the life story of this very, very simple product inform our discussions and our debates about globalization. Okay. And so uh, I investigated this life story. The life story of my t-shirt is very much a global story. The life story is shown on this map here. This is a t-shirt I bought for about $5 in Florida. Okay. And you can see on the map the biography of this t-shirt. It was born in West Texas near Lubbock, which is the global center of the cotton agricultural industry in the world today. Okay. So just as you have in Nebraska a very high, high concentration of corn and soy and wheat, uh, in, in West Texas it's even more concentrated because pretty much all there is for a variety of reasons is cotton. Okay. And so I spent time in West Texas learning about the global cotton industry. Uh, this cotton for my t-shirt was then shipped to China, okay, where it was spun into yarn and knit into fabric and ultimately turned into a t-shirt. Okay. And so I next spent time in China to learn about the next step in this value chain, which is the global textile and apparel industry. Once the cotton is transformed into a t-shirt, it of course came back to the United States. Uh, this is a very interesting part of the story because you think of this, this part as being simple. You know, the t-shirt just gets on a boat and comes back to the US. But actually it's a very complicated journey because in order to get goods back into the United States, especially from China, the goods have to navigate uh, very complex uh, US and international trade rules and trade policies. So part of the study was about, um, was about the politics behind these trade flows. Okay. Ultimately, most of the clothing that you and I purchase in the US 
is donated to Salvation Army or to Goodwill or something like that. And once it's donated, it uh, gives rise to yet a, another global industry, and that is the industry in used and recycled textiles. Okay. And what I learned is that, uh, as most of you out there, I can see there's a lot of t-shirts out there. Uh, we were talking about this at lunch today. Most of us in the United States have way too many t-shirts, right? Okay. And so every year, um, maybe your mom says, hey, give me some of those t-shirts, I'll take them to Goodwill. Okay. Now, from an economic perspective, if we all have too much of something, that's what we would call a surplus. Okay. And if I have too many t-shirts, old t-shirts, and you have too many old t-shirts, then we're not going to buy each other's old t-shirts. Okay. And so in a country like the United States, you have a surplus of something like used clothing. Okay. In a global economy, that surplus will tend to find a home okay, in a place where there's a shortage. Okay. Um, in particular, in the United States, warm weather clothing, such as t-shirts, tends to find its way to the markets in Africa. Okay. And this is another very, very interesting industry, the way this clothing is collected and sorted and graded and sold. Okay. So here you have it, uh, the life story of my t-shirt. Okay. And again, my idea was to just ask what this simple product could teach us about globalization. Now, the first edition uh, of this book was uh, published in 2005, and the second one in 2009. Okay. Um, one of the things that I did remember very well was the very strong anti-globalization sentiment that was kind of pervading the, uh, the news as you watched these protests and so forth from the early days of the decade. But after my book was published, um, I wasn't quite prepared for the very strong negative reactions that this picture that you see up here uh, seemed to cause in people. Okay. To someone like myself, who comes out of a business and economics background, if I were looking at this picture, not knowing anything else, just seeing this picture up on the wall, uh, I think most people coming out of backgrounds like mine would say, well, that's a happy picture. Okay? That's a happy picture because it shows trade flows, it shows globalization, and trade and globalization is sent essentially to somebody from economics is a story of creation. Okay? If we are trading these goods back and forth across borders, we are creating jobs, we are creating wealth, we are creating production. So this is essentially a happy story that we're showing up here. Okay. Now, this picture that we're looking at, of course, looks much different than a picture would have looked for a t-shirt produced as recently as about 1990. Okay. If we go back to 1990 and we say, well, what would a typical picture look like for the life story of a t-shirt produced in 1990? It was much more typical to have all of this activity confined to a relatively small part of the United States, and that would be the South. 
So we'd have cotton production in Texas, we'd have textile production in North Carolina, we'd have apparel uh, assembly and sewing in Alabama, and we'd have used clothing donated to Goodwill and then would find its way to less fortunate people here in the United States. So instead of these, these lines going all around the world, as recently as 1990, this was a tiny little picture. Okay? And this is what bothered people. Uh, this was what was generating the strong reaction. The idea that it was a negative development for the story of this t-shirt to go from taking up a small piece of the, the, the map to a very big piece of the map. Okay. What I had thought was that the anti-globalization uh, protest was sort of a, um, almost a, a fringe movement, if you will. Okay. I had thought that these were college students, these were activists, okay. These weren't uh, people that you run into on so-called uh, Main Street, okay? But what I learned as I traveled around talking about this book was that the negative connotations, the negative reactions to globalization were not at the fringes of American society. They were very much on Main Street, okay? And what I was picking up from audiences as I, talked to, as I talked about this book was confirmed by a lot of political poll data and a lot of survey data. So for example, in 2002, almost 80% of Americans had a favorable, a very favorable or somewhat good view of international trade. Uh, this went down to as low as about 52% in 2008 and bounced back some according to the recent survey. But we look now at the current popular opinion and this is saying 66%, two-thirds of Americans have a favorable view of trade. Well, to someone from a background such as mine, um, that's very surprising because it means that one-third of Americans are negatively disposed to the very idea of international trade and globalization. The other thing that the survey data finds is that um, we are more negative about international trade than citizens of just about any other industrialized country. More negative than, Jap than Japan, more negative than Germany, more negative than Italy, more negative than Brazil, and so forth and so on. Okay. So what I encountered then was kind of a very broad-based broad uh, sense of pessimism about international trade. Now as I started to investigate and think about this more and more, of course I realized that anti-trade sentiment has a very long and illustrious history. Uh, early Christians, with very few exceptions, were very opposed to international trade and wanted to keep their economies very local. Uh, the ancient Greeks were also very reticent about international trade. Now these groups had different reasons. Um, the Christians, uh, in many cases, were opposed to commerce sort of generally, and international trade was a particular version of commerce. Um, trade and money-making were thought to be kind of evil activities. The ancient Greeks, on the other hand, uh, they were opposed to trade because they valued the ideal of, of self-sufficiency. They thought we should all kind of be taking care of ourselves. 
So um, all of this is to say that while in 1999, what looked like a kind of a snapshot event, this anti-globalization movement, it first appeared to me that this was a, a kind of a phenomenon that was limited by, both in terms of its point in time and in terms of how many people agreed with this view. Uh, but really what I learned was that this pessimism or this wariness, if you will, about international trade um, has a very long history and it also has a very strong hold on American public opinion. Okay. Now this leads to the question, uh, why such a long and steadfast objections? Or in other words, as I titled this talk tonight, who's afraid of international trade? Well, as you probably know, uh, there's a sharp divide on the topic of trade if you put economists in one category and the rest of the world uh, in another category. Because almost without exception, economics views the free flow of goods and services across borders as the best economic policy for a country to follow. Okay. Um, the economic case for free trade, and many of you have learned this in your economics classes, rests on the argument that the free exchange of goods and services across borders will result in higher incomes and higher economic growth. So if the object of the game is to have the highest level of economic activity, the highest rate of economic growth, then economists will tell you that free trade is demonstrably the best way to achieve this goal. Okay. Now we have many, many volumes of research that confirm this conclusion. Okay. Countries with fewer barriers to international trade very clearly outperform those with high barriers. Okay. And the idea is a simple one. If we allow countries to specialize in goods and services where they have a comparative advantage, then free trade is a win-win. And it's almost by definition that free trade is good policy to economists because we define good policy as that which leads to the highest level of economic performance. Okay. Now, free trade, of course, also produces losers as well as winners within a national economy. Okay. So in very broad terms, the state of Nebraska wins from international trade because Nebraska is such a big exporter to the rest of the world. Okay. Also in very broad terms, uh, Michigan and Ohio tend to lose because many of the industries that were dominant in Michigan and Ohio have now been really gutted by competition from abroad. Okay. So under a free trade regime, industries where we don't have a comparative advantage, such as steel or textiles or shoes, okay, will lose okay, and will have unemployment in these sectors. Okay. So what will happen is that our country as a whole will become richer but some firms and industries and individuals will lose. Okay. Traditionally, we believed that most of the objection 
to international trade. The one-third of the people that you see up here who object. We thought that most of the, uh, the complainers, if you will, were coming, most of the complaints were coming from those who got the short end of the stick, who were the losers in globalization. Because it made sense that if your factory in Michigan or Ohio closed because of cheaper imports from China, then you're going to be opposed to international trade. But if anti-trade sentiment in society is the result of all of those people who have been harmed by trade, then there's a relatively simple solution. Okay? And that is that we need to protect the people who are harmed by trade or to compensate them. Okay? In other words, if we can take the person in Ohio who's lost their job because of international trade and compensate them, maybe with retraining, maybe with extended employment benefits or health benefits or so forth, then maybe we can bring people more on board with a free trade agenda. Economists kind of believe that if you pay somebody enough, they'll change their mind. Okay. 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 So this policy compensate the losers has been the cornerstone of U.S. policy since about the end of World War II. By extending all of these benefits and protections, okay, tax credits and health insurance, unemployment insurance, and so forth, the people who protest against trade could be kind of quieted down so that the rest of us could get on with what is clearly the best economic policy. I don't think it's quite that simple anymore because as I've been talking about this book really around the world, okay, um, one of the things that I've learned is that it's not only the losers from international trade who have concerns and objections. Okay? In fact, there's really very little doubt that uh, the great, great majority of Americans are economic beneficiaries of international trade. Global competition is a huge boon for us. It brings us cheaper and better TVs and computers and cars and t-shirts. Many of us, of course, work for foreign companies or we make a living selling products and services to the rest of the world. So you see the closed factory or you see the people who have lost on the TV all the time. But in reality, uh, the losers from international trade are far, far outnumbered by the winners. Okay? So I now think that this focus on the losers um, is missing, really, a wide range of objections to international trade and globalization. Some of these concerns are valid. Maybe some of them are not so valid, but they are all more complicated than the lost paycheck of a factory worker in Ohio. Okay. I think there are three categories of concerns that people have about international trade in addition to the traditional concern of the laid off factory work worker. I think there are concerns about the future of our natural environment. I think there are concerns about the process by which goods are produced. And I think there are concerns about the fairness of our global trade regime. Okay. 
So I can be a beneficiary of international trade, I can be a winner, while at the same time having concerns about these issues. Let's take the first one. Is international trade threatening the environment? Okay. Well, it seems like a logical concern. Okay. Uh, first of all, trade expands the scale of economic activity. So we have more production, we have more resources being consumed, we have more pollution, so forth and so on. Okay. Uh, secondly, as this map shows, there's an awful lot of transportation involved compared to our story of 30 or so years ago, okay, when all of the t-shirts production was local. Okay. And finally, there is this idea that um, there's a sort of environmental race to the bottom in globalization today. So won't companies kind of pick their production location or choose to put their factories where environmental controls are the weakest? And so if companies are putting their production in the countries with the weakest controls, then isn't that in the long run damaging to the environment? Okay. Now I think fortunately, uh, some emerging research suggests a more complicated picture. Uh, for example, it is free trade after all that allows environmentally friendly technologies to spread across borders. Okay. And it's also true that the richer people become from international trade or from any other source, the more they are willing to pay for clean air and water the more they're willing to pay for environmental quality. So maybe actually the causality runs the other way. And maybe international trade and globalization is a help to the environment. Okay. I don't think we know the answer to the question right now. Okay. There is a lot of ongoing research, a lot of uh, data to be sorted out. My point, however, is that these environmental concerns are not directly addressed by compensating factory workers who've lost their jobs. Okay. So if US policy is simply to compensate the losers um, who have lost from globalization, then this leaves unaddressed this, the concerns of another segment of our citizens, which has to do with the future of the environmental viability of our planet. Okay. So if we're going to try to bring these folks on board, with a free trade and globalization agenda, it's gonna require very different policies than things like extending health insurance or job retraining, so forth and so on. Uh, the second concern that I have heard uh, is that I think both businesses and consumers are increasingly concerned with what I think of as the process associated with making goods and services in addition to the product that they're purchasing. If all I am worried about is getting the best product at the best price, the cheapest t-shirt or the best TV or what have you, then free trade is a very easy sell because obviously it makes sense to have global competition. That is the best thing for a consumer. But if I'm not only concerned with the product attributes and the price of the product, I also have concerns about the process by which the goods are produced, then maybe I have a more complicated picture. Okay. 
Um, I have an example of this from my visit to Nebraska. I'm staying just down the street, I don't know which way it is, but at the Embassy Suites, okay? Um, And they're nice enough to leave me coffee to make in the morning, okay? And this morning when I woke up, I found this little card at the Embassy Suites next to my coffee, okay? The card says, our coffee is strong enough to save the world. And then it goes on to say, we're looking to make the world a better place by making the world a better cup of coffee. Traditional forested coffee farms are havens for wildlife. And now coffee lovers everywhere can support farmers who maintain these rainforest environments, so forth and so on. Why did they put this thing on my pillow? Well, someone made a judgment that People who stayed in the hotel cared about the process, right, of the production of this product, okay? Somebody made that decision, okay? And I think that it is true that increasingly both businesses and consumers do have process questions. Now, a big example of this was, of course, the anti-sweatshop protests of about 10 years ago, okay? So if I am concerned about alleged sweatshop conditions in the production of my apparel or alleged damage to um, coffee growing communities from the production of my coffee, then once again, you are not going to be able to bring me on board with a free trade agenda simply by taking care of laid off factory workers. Finally, In order to bring people on board with a free trade agenda, people have to believe that the system, if you want, for lack of a better word, is fair. And this is really interesting uh, from the perspective of someone like myself with an academic background in uh, in economics. because what the new research shows in, uh, and this is even taking place in, in laboratories like neuroscience research, what it increasingly shows is that even though economists predict that we all want more and more and more and more, actually we are also concerned, it appears maybe even at a cellular level, with whether the game we're playing is fair. And we will give up money. We will walk away from money if we don't think the game is fair. So not only can we not pay you enough to agree with us, it's possible that you won't play at all in a game where you think the rules are stacked, even if they're possibly stacked in your favor, okay? Um, Now this kind of came very clear to me when I started to follow research that was being done on primates, okay? Did you know even animals demand to be treated fairly? This is what the new research is showing, okay? And there was a fascinating study that I'll describe for you because it actually, whether the investigators realized it or not, is an experiment about international trade, okay? 
All right, so here's our experiment. We have a big room and a bunch of monkeys in the room. The monkeys can all see one another. Okay. We have an investigator walk into the room okay, and give each monkey a pile of rocks. Okay. And then we train the monkeys. If the monkey hands over a rock, we give the monkey a piece of cucumber. Okay. So this is trade. Okay. Monkey hands over a rock, they get cucumber. Rock, cucumber, rock, cucumber. Now, this is a really good deal if you're a monkey because you have no use for the rocks and the cucumbers are tasty. Okay. So to an economist, there's no reason for this trade to be disrupted. It seems to us that the monkey would want to continue trading in this economy. Okay. They're getting richer and richer and richer after all. Okay. So everybody's happy in our little trading economy until the investigator changes how they do things. Now, again, in full view of all the monkeys, the investigator starts to give some of the monkeys grapes instead of cucumbers in exchange for their rocks. But only a couple of the monkeys get grapes. Everybody else keeps getting cucumbers. Okay. Now, what we would say as economists who study trade is, eh, it's all good, okay? Um, because everybody is still better off in this economy. Everybody's getting more and more to eat. We're all getting richer, okay? The problem is that monkeys much prefer grapes to cucumbers, okay? And so some of us are getting grapes. Some of us are getting cucumbers, okay? The problem is even though we're all getting richer, okay, maybe you, some of you have a, pred a prediction about what the monkeys might do in this case. If you were a monkey and you're getting cucumbers and you're watching your next door neighbor get grapes, what might you do? I forget we're in the Midwest where everybody's polite. You can just say it. You could maybe beat the monkey up. Yeah, you could, um, you could start uh, to throw your rocks. But wait a minute, why would I throw my rocks? My rocks are worth food. Okay. But it turns out this is exactly what happened. Uh, the monkeys got very angry. They started to throw their rocks. They, their, they threw their rocks at the investigators. They also threw their rocks at the monkeys who were uh, getting the grapes. Okay. The whole economy collapsed. Okay. The whole economy collapsed. Why did the whole economy collapse? Because there were a group of citizens in that economy who did not think they were being treated fairly. It's as simple as that. Okay? So, and this again, I want to stress, is these were all winners in this economy. Okay? Everybody was getting richer. Okay? But even though they were all getting richer, they decided to become protesters in effect, anti-trade protesters, because they didn't think this game was fair. 
And what we now know about human beings is that we are also okay, very quick to give up our financial gains if we do not believe the process uh, that is delivering these goods is fair. Okay? So do we want more and more and more cheaper and cheaper goods? Of course we do. But we also want to know that the trade arrangements that deliver these goods to us are fair. Okay? So I also think that much of the objection that we hear much of the anti-trade sentiment that we hear is not so much from the losers, if you will, but those who have reservations about the fairness of the, pro of the, of the process. So for example, there are many practices that are common in China, where of course we have a very, very big trade deficit, that people don't think are fair. We have the, the, the currency that is um, kind of pegged or um, at an artificially low level. Okay. And there are people who think that's not fair. You should have a market exchange rate like the rest of us. Uh, in China, piracy and counterfeiting is rampant. Okay. That's viewed, at least in Washington, as cheating by some. It's not fair, even though maybe I'm a beneficiary and I have some of those counterfeit goods myself. There are a variety of uh, different kinds of subsidies for state-owned industries. There are all kinds of um, corrupt practices in the various provinces of China. So if you listen to anti-trade sentiment and you listen carefully, often what you're hearing, okay, is really a condemnation about practices, particularly in China, but not only in China, where people think that the game is being won, if you will, uh, because of unfair practices. Okay? So once again, we're not going to address that concern by compensating our factory workers. Now, I think a similar point about fairness applies to our burgeoning free trade agreements. We have dozens of free trade agreements now in the United States. We have NAFTA and we have CAFTA and we have trade agreements in, in South America. We have a new trade agreement with South Korea. We have a trade agreement with Australia. Okay. These are all called free trade agreements. Uh, the deal is supposed to be with each agreement trade between our partner in the agreement and the United States uh, goes back and forth freely. So free trade agreements are supposed to lead to free trade. Okay. Well, that's not exactly how it works. I think a good example to understand how our free trade agreements work is to think about um, maybe tickets to a movie. Let's imagine that movie tickets cost $10. Okay. Anybody who wants to see the movie has to pay $10. Okay, fair enough. Now let's start signing free trade agreements. What might the movies look like then? Okay. Well, I'll tell you what it would look like. Uh, it would be something like, okay, students half price on Tuesdays. Uh, senior citizens, you can come for $2 on Wednesday. Okay. 
On Thursday, everybody comes free if you're there before five, okay? So on and so forth, and we end up with a dozen free trade agreements for the movies, but actually trade is more complicated than it was before, okay? This is, in my view, what we have done with our burgeoning free trade agreements, okay? So we don't really have free trade with all of these different partners that we've signed these agreements with. We just have a different complicated set of rules for each country, okay? And the problem, I think, is that these complicated sets of rules are written in a typically political way in Washington with undue influence from certain industries or certain constituencies or what we like to call special interests. So if you look at a free trade agreement and you really, you really if you really want a free trade agreement, then all you need is one piece of paper that says your goods can come this way and ours can go that way. But free trade agreements are like this, this high, okay? There's this many rules that govern them and it takes a specialist to understand them and they are really political creations. And so I think a lot of American citizens uh, don't quite trust the process by which these rules came about because the free trade agreements aren't really so much about liberalizing trade as they are about setting up special kinds of rules for certain interest groups, okay? And I think, and this is of course no different than the criticism you hear about a lot of rulemaking in Washington. Um, so when you hear protests or you hear arguments against things like NAFTA or CAFTA or the Columbia Free Trade Agreement, I don't actually think what you're hearing is arguments with trade, okay? I think what you're hearing is arguments about the fairness of the process by which these rules are created. So in summary, you know, there is no doubt that the traditional U.S. policy of compensating the losers, job retraining, enhanced safety nets, and so forth, these policies will help to dampen some of the Main Street concerns about international trade and globalization. Okay. And I absolutely agree that in order for a free trade agenda to move forward, we do have to protect those that have been harmed by liberalizing trade, okay? So if we are talking about a textile town in North Carolina where the factory closed and the jobs all went to China, then of course that traditional policy response of protecting the losers is appropriate, okay? But if I'm correct, that a lot of anti-trade sentiment is coming from the winners because of concerns about the environment, about the process by which goods reach our shores, about the fairness of the underlying regime, then compensating the losers does not address those concerns. Okay. So in order to bring people on board who have these types of concerns, we need a much more creative and complicated policy response from our leaders in Washington, in Beijing, and in Brussels. Thank you very much.
Uh, now, while uh, hopefully I'll get some questions uh, from the audience here, uh, let me start with uh, questions uh, coming from the Thompson scholars, from the students who are uh, in that uh, learning community. Uh, the first question is, uh, how do we satisfy the current consumer mentality in a non-sweatshop world? Uh, to some extent, you dealt with that, I think, but uh, perhaps you might want to elaborate. Well, I think the internet age is partly taking care of that uh, because uh, information now is so instantaneous and companies are so afraid of tarnishing their reputation and their brand uh, that they have a very strong economic incentive now to look out for labor conditions down deep into their supply chains. Um, so I think there's a dual-prong approach. I think the companies are being, uh, are being pushed out of their own self-interest to clean up labor conditions in their supply chains. And of course, as countries themselves become wealthier, they have a better capability to have their own enforcement mechanisms in place as well. Um, labor conditions in China right now in the apparel industry are uh, astonishingly improved from what they were even just 10 years ago, I think as the result of, of both of those forces. Okay. okay, a second question from the Thompson scholars. Uh, how can Africa balance their used clothing market with protecting their cotton production? Okay. Uh, well, I think there are actually two different industries that we're talking about there. Uh, their cotton agriculture industry, uh, the, the main challenge that the cotton agriculture industry faces in, in West Texas are actually the, the cotton ag subsidies that we pay our cotton producers. And so, uh, and the United States has been found in violation repeatedly over the past 10 years or so. Um, because of the extent of these subsidies, and the case has been brought by Brazil as well as West Africa. So uh, there's no doubt that those big ag subsidies put the African growers at a, a, a disadvantage. Uh, in terms of the used clothing coming in, uh, remarkably, even if you took away all the used clothing going into Africa, uh, it would still be very, very difficult for Africans um, to develop a strong apparel industry because it's the goods coming in from China that are actually undercutting them in terms of price. So the new clothing, much of the new clothing coming into Africa from China is actually uh, priced below the used clothing coming in from the United States. And so Africa faces the same challenge as apparel produces everywhere, which is competing with China. Okay, can you give one or two examples of special interest served by present free trade agreements? Sure, um, <laughs> I could give you more than one or two. Um, for example, uh, CAFTA. Okay. Uh, the CAFTA free trade agreement allows, and, and I'm going to summarize again a stack of papers that's something like this high. Uh, the CAFTA free trade agreement allows apparel to come into the United States from the, uh, uh, these Central American countries free of tariffs. Okay. So far, so good. But if you actually look at the, 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 the law itself, how it's written and how it's enforced and how it was intended, 
the only way you can really get your apparel in from uh, Central American countries into the United States tariff-free easily is if that clothing is made of uh, fabric produced in the United States. Okay. So what you have here is a rule that's protecting U.S. fabric producers uh, at the same time really limiting the ability of the Central American countries to develop their own textile industry. They would be able to sell us much more clothing if they could source their fabric you know, from India or China or Pakistan, but they really can't. So you have a free trade agreement there that's really, um, that, that was written in a way to protect the U.S. Uh, textile producers. Thank you. Uh, if it is so that free passage of resources and products across borders in general benefits most people, might it follow that free passage of workers across borders would also benefit the most people? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so, but of course we have free uh, passage of goods, free passage mostly of services and very limited free passage of people. And that from the standpoint of economic growth okay, is a bad policy. When you did your research uh, for your uh, book uh, on China, did you do work on uh, conditions of workers uh, in China? And if so, what kind of work did you do? Here I'm sort of summarizing the gist of, of a longer question. Uh, yes, I went to visit many apparel factories in China, uh, actually many textile factories too, uh, because I was very interested in answering the questions that the students had initially posed at those protests. Um, and, you know, it's, it's very difficult to, to summarize. I didn't find or see anything that looked like it was out of a bad movie. Um, you know, I, I think in general it is not good or profitable business practice to abuse workers. Generally, workers who are treated fairly and humanely and safely will be more productive. So I did not see anything uh, out of a Charles Dickens novel. Uh, that's not to say the work is not terribly boring, terribly repetitive, um, and really just quite, quite grueling. Um, but I won't, I wouldn't go so far as to say I, I saw sweatshops. What do you suggest we do in order to maintain trade, but while not hurting the environment and people? Okay. Well, I think, and, and this is very, very tricky, I, I think that what we, we need to start with is some sort of harmonization of environmental rules and environmental standards and environmental policies. Uh, we do, for example, um, the International Labor Organization has a set of core labor standards that countries agree to sign on to. Uh, I think we've got some, uh, some environmental issues like that, uh, certainly in terms of um, of, of a global warming where we're trying to do things collectively. But I think since environmental problems don't stay within borders, we do need some sort of global cooperative mechanism. But I know that's very, very, very tricky uh, in a world where politics are, are national and not global. Some Americans believe that China is going to take over the world and fear this. 
Can you comment and suggest some reasons why this is unlikely to happen? <laughs> Take over the world. Uh, China has an incredible number of challenges uh, that are not going to be overcome easily or in a short period of time. China is dominating the global economy in the manufacture and assembly of relatively low-end goods. Okay, so if you say, where is China winning? You know, China is winning in assembling electronics and shoes and textiles. Um, there's no doubt they're moving up the value chain a little bit. But if you look at the high-complexity manufacturing or the high-complexity services and so forth, uh, China, I believe, has decades to go before it catches up with, um, with Germany and Japan and the United States. Um, my own personal view uh, also is that the, China's own political system is a barrier to them taking over the world. Um, I think that uh, until the Chinese citizens can read what they want and write what they want and elect their own leaders, um, it won't be possible for them to advance, uh, never mind leap over uh, the uh, industrial democracies. Uh, with all the complex issues, how can the U.S. economy regain its former glories without a strong manufacturing base? Well, it's interesting. You know, manufacturing employment is actually up uh, this past month. Uh, what, there's two things happening simultaneously in the United States. Manufacturing employment is on a fairly steady, long-run decline since the end, uh, since not too long after uh, World War II, okay? Up maybe into the 60s and 70s into some industries. So we've had some blips, as I said last month, manufacturing employment was up, but pretty much the employment in manufacturing has been at a, at a relatively steady decline. However, and that's of course what you hear on the news, what you don't hear is that manufacturing output has been steadily increasing for that entire period. So what is happening is that we are producing more and more and more with fewer and fewer workers. Okay? Um, and that is because, first of all, our technology is advancing at such a rapid rate, but it's also because our workers are increasingly more productive. So it's, it's a fallacy that we are um, that we're no longer manufacturing. It is true that we're losing manufacturing employment, but that's because the manufacturing that we are doing in the United States is very capital intensive, very high tech, um, and just requires few, fewer workers. How can Native American groups as sovereign ent entities participate in non-local markets with the amount of regulations they have uh, upon them coming from the federal government? Now you are completely um, out of my league of expertise. And I'll have to say I don't, I'm just not familiar. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, can the modern theory of feminist economics help to solve the current uh, cotton market imbalances? Can the modern theory of feminist economics help to solve 
the, the current cotton market imbalances, I think the question is probably addressed at the larger issues of, of international trade. What does uh, feminist economics have to do with uh, the kinds of issues you've been talking about? Uh, well, I also have to plead ignorance on the topic of feminist economics. I'm not, I have a feeling that maybe I'm a part of it, but I'm not sure. <laughs> um, this is a question I'm sure you can answer more, more easily than the last couple which, which have stretched you. Uh, are you planning on writing a third edition of the t-shirt book? <laughs> uh, that's a really good question. Um, so if, if I were just out to, to make more money, I'd have to answer that question, yes. Um, but it, it would be a ch it's going to be a challenge to keep writing new editions of this book. Um, it, it's hard uh, to figure out how to do that because this, this book is actually a story that took place at a point in time. So it is a particular t-shirt that was produced in this particular way at a particular point in time. So I can't really update that story. I mean, the story is what it was. And so from a, I guess, literary perspective, it's hard for me to figure out how I would continue to update it. Um, so I, I, they've asked me about that. Uh, and I, I've said that I'll think about it, but I haven't committed to it. Okay. What policy do you suggest for Congress to follow that will help both the winners and losers in globalization? Well, you know, I think that the simplest um, and most important solution has to do with foundational education in this country. Okay? So if you look at the jobs that will be available under the increasingly globalized economy, okay, there will be very little room in this economy uh, for people who, who, who do not have uh, basic skills in, in mathematics, in reading, in computer literacy. So I think the most important public policy uh, that, we can, um, that we can make in this country is to make sure that, that, uh, that our workers are prepared uh, from the first grade okay, in being able to operate computers, read and write, and follow technical instructions. Uh, let me try to reduce to a shorter question, a, a much more lengthy question. Uh, and the essence of it, I think, if I read it correctly, is uh, you know, how do you ensure that international trade uh, can be sustainable you know, to create a kind of equilibrium uh, in the global economy that is sustainable over the long run? Um, I don't think you do. I mean, I, I think that any system, um, we've, we've never had a sustainable global economy, and I don't think we ever will, uh, because it changes too quickly. Okay? So, you know, for example, uh, if you look at uh, Japan's dominance in the 1980s, people would say, well, is this, uh, is this world order sustainable? And the answer is um, no. But that doesn't mean that we should take some sort of active policy action against Japan. Okay? 
all by itself, an economic system is so dynamic that no one pattern will be sustained. So I think that, for example, the challenges right now that we face in our trade relationship with China and the challenges that China faces internally uh, mean that the status quo is not going to be sustainable. And so some other uh, trading relationship will 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 rise up. Um, I don't think we're going to be able to design some sort of system from the top that we call sustainable. Let's end with this question. Uh, do you agree there is a conflict between the goals of economists who see free trade as a process leading to efficiency and low prices and our government leaders whose priorities are more on the process and preserving American jobs. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, what, what economists um, can do is talk about what they believe are the best economic policies. But economic policies are not, do not trump all other interests or all other kinds of policies. So um, there is no doubt that the members of Congress need to consider other points of view, other values, other metrics besides economic growth uh, when formulating our public policy. So the economists, I think, would like to be heard, but we actually don't want to always be obeyed. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much, Professor Rivoli. And